Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and have I got some stories for you today. I hope y'all had an excellent Thanksgiving if you did celebrate Thanksgiving. So last week, I finished my first series about the Jacobite Wars in the 45. The last full episode discussed the Battle of Culloden and the end of the Jacobite cause. But there are some little related stories I still want to tell when it comes to that big story. In between trying to run and exercise Thanksgiving dinner off, I've managed to put together a couple of postscripts, P.S., supplements to the broader story. I've released them both at the same time, so listen to them as you please. This short round concerns some very important people who weren't necessarily on the battlefield during the saga of the 45, but they were behind the battlefield and they were critical to the conduct and course of the war. These are the women of the 45. I included women in the broader narrative as I got the chance, but a lot of the action-heavy narratives of the war, the cut-and-thrust kind of stuff, as in most wars, is kind of a bro-fest. But right here is where I give the women their place in the sun, because their stories matter too. Today's episode is going to be a pastiche, with some very personal stories and some broader narrative, but by the end of it, I hope that we'll understand the important role that women play in war, even when guns aren't in their hands, because this is their story too. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. It's a little bit more so today than others. This podcast is PG-13. Language is clean, content is not. There is also a trigger warning for some short mentions of sexual violence. All my sources will be posted on my website, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real women who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's do this thing. It will probably surprise zero of you that Scotland in the 1740s was not a towering beacon of women's rights. Pretty much no place in the 1740s was. They were all what we would call patriarchal societies, where men had total authority over women. But, I want to stress this, there's patriarchies and then there's patriarchies, right? The 1740s fall smack dab in what we would call the Age of the Enlightenment, with the usual bundle of contradictory beliefs that came with it. Mainstream Enlightenment and Whiggish thought was progressive, scientific, rational, and promoted the advancement of mankind, emphasis on the man. Most men saw women as basically little better than large children, naturally inferior, the quote-unquote gentle sex that needed to be sheltered and protected, guardians of peace and vulnerability, in contrast with the frat boy behavior of most men. Still, though, compared with the more constrictive Victorian era that was to follow, the 18th century, the 1700s, were a relatively permissive society. This was truer in Scotland than almost anywhere else in Europe. Under old Scottish laws and traditions, women had a stronger individual position. When they got married, for instance, they kept their original surnames, and many European visitors commented on the confidence and outspokenness of Scottish women. Women were notable as the visible bedrock of the Episcopalian faith, to the point that British officers often complained that all the cutest girls were quote-unquote piskies that wouldn't give them the time of day. Like I said, there's patriarchies and then there's patriarchies. Now, Jacobite ideology, 
was never feminist, Lord no. It was conservative, hierarchical, and downright regressive in some ways. But being a Jacobite meant being a deviant from modern society and the social norms of 18th century Britain. And this meant that many women who were trying to break those norms looked to the Jacobite cause as a convenient ally. And in a time of rebellion and revolution, women could spread their wings in ways they never could in the constricted world of the salon and the ballroom. Revolution, as we saw back in the Battalions of Death episode, loosens up social norms, societal norms. And this was one reason why many women were drawn to the Jacobite cause and played a big role in the 45. Now, to get this started, a lot of histories of the 45, mainstream histories, focus on women's reaction to Charles Edward Stuart himself. Magdalene Pringle was a young Whiggish woman in Edinburgh who claimed to be disgusted by other women's enthusiasm when Charlie arrived in their wonderful stinky city. She wrote to her sister that, The windows were full of ladies who threw up their handkerchiefs and clapped their hands and showed their loyalty to the Bonnie Prince. Don't imagine I was one of those ladies. I assure you, I was not. Later on, though, she succumbed to curiosity and went out to see Charles in his camp. He was sitting in a tent when I first came to the field. The ladies made a circle around the tent, and after we had gazed our fill at him, he came out of the tent with a grace and majesty that is inexpressible. He saluted all the circle with an air of grandeur and affability, capable of charming the most obstinate wig, and mounting his horse in the middle of the circle, he rode off to view the men. His Highness rides very finely, and indeed in all his appearance seems to be cut out for enchanting his beholders, and carrying his people to consent to their own slavery, in spite of themselves. So you see, Magdalene was constantly telling her sister how much she disapproved of all those women gathering around the pretender. She was just curious, of course, so she didn't count. But her point of view was a common one. Many women, even non-Jacobites who thought Charlie was the instrument of the French and the Pope, were swept up by the romance of the cause and Charlie's undeniable charm. As we have seen, it didn't work out so well for the women who actually got to date their hero. Probably true for most celebrities, honestly. The fangirl promoted to girlfriend is not usually a happy story. And in a lot of histories, that's the only side you'll see of the 45 from a woman's perspective. Women as passive observers, women as somehow outside the real story. And for some women, that was true. But others made themselves part of the narrative. From the moment that Charles Edward Stewart landed in Scotland, Jacobite women all over the country went into action. They were raising money, raising support, and sometimes raising troops. When Charlie raised the standard at Glenfinnan on August 19, 1745, calling out the clans, he was met by Jenny Cameron with 300 Cameron men from Dessery. Jenny Cameron was 45 years old, a well-respected woman who had wide influence over her own sect of the clan. Even though Whig propaganda depicted her as, well, a hussy, one of Charlie's mistresses, guilty of incest and infanticide and probably internet piracy, her contribution to Charlie's banner at Glenfinnan was critically important in the early days of the rebellion. Famously beautiful Margaret Ogilvy was married to the famously handsome young lowland lord David Ogilvy. Both of them were committed Jacobites, and David rallied to Charlie when he arrived in Perth in September 1745. 
This hot young couple, both 20 years old, went beating up the countryside for recruits. She was by his side, drawn sword in her hand, as David proclaimed King James III and Prince Charles as the regent. Margaret Ogilvy accompanied her husband throughout all the campaigns of the 45, even to Derby and back. But none of the recruiters holds a candle to Colonel Anne. Anne McIntosh was a Highland chief's daughter and supposedly one of the most beautiful women in Scotland. In 1745, she was 22 years old, married to the much older Aeneas McIntosh, chief of Clan McIntosh. Despite what you may think, observers confirmed that Anne was crazy in love with Aeneas and he in love with her. The Laird of McIntosh was an officer in King George's army. But neither his position nor her love changed Anne's beliefs. She was a committed Jacobite, and when she learned that Charlie had landed, she made her move. Despite her husband being in the British army, Anne McIntosh rode off to rally his clan to fight for the Jacobites. Dressed in a tartan riding habit with a blue bonnet and a pair of pistols, she charmed, bribed, and threatened every McIntosh clansman she came across. And guys, if this lady came riding up to you and told you to do your job as a man, that's, you're going to go. She eventually raised 300 men for Bonnie Prince Charlie, earning her the nickname Colonel Anne. The McIntosh Regiment went on to fight at Falkirk and suffered predictably terrible casualties at Culloden, though Anne herself did not lead them. Even she wasn't going to stretch the boundaries of gender roles that far. But Colonel Anne also played a key part at the rout of Moy, when a force of government Highlanders tried to ambush and capture the prince. Moy Hall was her house, and when word arrived of the impending attack, she woke Charlie and his staff up and hustled them off to safety. After this, she had a new nickname, the Heroine. A few days later, when the Jacobites captured Inverness, Captain McIntosh was captured and Charlie released him into Anne's custody. Anne greeted him with, your servant, Captain. And he responded, Your servant, Colonel. They were probably destined for marriage counseling, but let's be honest, we've all seen worse marriages. Couples have survived worse things in a Jacobite rebellion, like installing a dishwasher, untangling Christmas lights, or the true test, deciding where to eat for dinner. But when women didn't directly raise troops for the Jacobite cause, they pressured men to join. And in many cases, they were the decisive factor. The Duke of Perth's mother, for instance, allegedly bullied him into joining the cause, though I wonder how she felt when he died of the wound he received at Culloden. The Duchess of Perth nevertheless raised 750 men for the cause herself. Isabel Haldane was married to Charles Stewart of Ardshiel, the clan chief of the Stuarts of Appin. Charles was one of the many clan chiefs on the fence about whether or not to join the 45, but Isabel told him that if he didn't lead the Stuarts of Appin to join Charlie, she would. The Appen Stuarts went to war, again suffered predictably terrible casualties at Culloden, and after that battle, Isabel hid Charles in a cave during the terrible ravaging of the Highlands. A gifted young artist in Edinburgh named Robbie Strange was deeply in love with a wild young Jacobite woman named Isabella Lumsden. He proposed to her, and Bella accepted, but with the condition that he joined the prince's cause. Oh, join a probably doomed rebellion, is that all? 
Either way, Bella said jump, Robbie said how high, and he ended up being a critical component of the Jacobite war effort, using his artistic skills to do engravings and design banknotes for the future Jacobite regime that would never be. Other women used their vast social influence to boost the 45. A few influential matriarchs with a critical infrastructure to Charlie's cause in the lowlands. Their queen was the 76-year-old Margaret, Lady Nairn, a formidable old battle axe who dominated her extended family. She was related to the very powerful Murray family, and the defection of Lord George Murray to the Jacobite cause was blamed on her influence. When there was an anti-Jacobite riot in Perth, Lady Nairn sent out a small squadron of daughters and daughters-in-law who pinned white cockades on any man they could find and sent them to suppress the uprising. The Duke of Cumberland called Lady Nairn that troublesome old woman. Lady Nairn's daughter Charlotte, Lady Lude, was an important landowner in Perthshire. She acted almost like a schoolgirl when the Prince Charles came to her house, falling to her knees and kissing his hand. She also lent Charlie a pair of shoe buckles, which are preserved in a nearby museum to this day, literally because Charlie's shoe buckles are a sacred artifact in modern Scotland. But Lady Lude was one of the main perpetrators when it came to forcing people into the Jacobite ranks. She threatened to burn the houses of her tenants if they didn't turn out, and in some cases she freaking did it just so that they knew she meant business. One of those ladies who's nice to her friends and is an absolute monster to the waitress. Lady Nairn's granddaughter was Caroline, Baroness Nairn, born long after the 45. She would become renowned as the great Jacobite songwriter, including the famous Will You Know Come Back Again, Charlie Is My Darling, and of course, who will be king but Charlie. She wrote these songs long after the Battle of Culloden. The Nairn ladies were a generational bedrock of the Jacobite cause, even long after the cause was defeated. Almost all of the women I just talked about stayed away from the actual fighting. So far as I know, so far as I know, no women participated in direct combat during the 45, not even Colonel Anne. But many women still went to war. They were referred to at the time as camp followers, the women who went with the army in all its campaigns and stayed in the camp during all its battles. Most of these women, both British and Jacobite, were the wives of soldiers who refused to be separated from their loved ones. Some were inevitably prostitutes who knew that this was the best business opportunity they would ever get and they needed to go where the customers were. All of them marched along with the army, taking care of many of the domestic and camp chores for their husbands and lovers. They tended the sick and, in times of trouble, helped to carry off and heal the wounded. Even though Prince Charles tried to ban women from the invasion of England, this order was almost completely ignored, and hundreds of women and their children made the journey to Derby and back, suffering immensely in the harsh weather. For example, Donald MacDonald's wife Jane and their 12-year-old daughter Clementina marched to Darby and back with him. I should remind you guys that the Jacobite army moved extremely fast and often threw snow up to its knees. Camp followers suffered numerous dangers. During Cumberland's crossing of the Spey River on the way to Culloden, several of the British Army's camp followers were swept away by the current, and a dragoon and his wife were pulled under together as they held on to each other. But the 18th century army literally could not function without its camp followers. The women provided support services and morale that came from nowhere else, especially for the British army, where men could serve for years in a remote outpost. 
The psychological support a military spouse provides his or her partner is hard to underestimate, and it is an essential part of any armed force. But the camp followers face danger and deprivation in ways the modern world can barely comprehend. They marched, suffered, and sometimes died alongside their loved ones. They just stuck by their men through sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death did them part. But women didn't have to be military spouses or even recruiters to make a contribution to the story of the 45. They were constrained by their abilities and by the social standards of the time, but that didn't mean their work wasn't important. What society calls women's work has always been undervalued and downplayed in the past in historical writing and even today. Across Scotland and England, women worked behind the lines to help what they saw as a gallant cause. They raised money, sewed clothes, cooked, cleaned, worked, went out of their way to assist the movement. Even from just a purely military perspective, the 45 needed these women funding, sewing, organizing, harvesting, and providing. When their men went to war, a woman picked up the slack. After all, the farms and mills and shops had to keep working. The resources had to keep running. Economics are the lifeblood of any army, and like the thousands of women who Rosie the Riveter represented during World War II, the women grew more essential as the men went to war. Some women gave literally everything they had. An elderly English woman named Mrs. Skyring lived in Manchester. She was old enough to remember as a child seeing Charles II returning from exile in 1660. She had been a rock-solid supporter of the Stuarts ever since, and after the Glorious Revolution, she sent half her income every year to the Stuart court in exile. When she learned that her prince had landed, Mrs. Skyring sold everything she had to scrape up funds for his army. When Charles arrived in Manchester, Mrs. Skyring was there to present him with the money. She met him and kissed his hand solemnly, looked at his face, and then prayed out loud to God, Lord, now lettest thou servant depart in peace. Mrs. Skyring passed away a few days after meeting Charlie, according to myth, from heartbreak when she learned of the decision at Derby. When Charlie arrived at Derby, many of the Jacobite women folk immediately went to work. Here's what one Victorian-era chronicler said. The ladies of Derby vied with each other in making these white cockades of delicate and costly workmanship to present to the hero of the day. To some of these admiring votaries, he presented his picture. One of these Jacobite ladies is known by her family to have kept the portrait of the prince behind the door of her bedchamber, carefully veiled from any but friendly inspection. But as we all know, eventually worst came to worst, and Culloden came. Anne Leith was a young widow who happened to be in Inverness at the time of Culloden. As soon as she heard of the defeat, she grabbed a bunch of bandages and ran to the battlefield to assist the wounded. A dangerous task, especially when the Redcoats were killing anyone they saw in Tartan. For weeks after the battle, she lobbied the government for better treatment of the Jacobite prisoners, going to every jail with food and supplies for almost three months until all the prisoners had been taken away. Anne Leith literally went broke in her efforts to help the Jacobite prisoners, earning her much unwanted attention from Redcoat officers, as well as the nickname, the Grand Rebel. After Culloden, Prince Charles was a wanted man, fleeing and hiding from the Redcoats across the Western Isles. And this is where we meet the most famous Jacobite heroine of all. Flora MacDonald was not a committed Jacobite. 
She didn't have the passion of so many of these other women. She just saw someone who needed help. In June 1746, Charlie was hiding in the Western Isles on the island of South Uist, which was swarming with 2,000 redcoats and Highland militia. The local militia leader was a secret Jacobite, and he sent his stepdaughter, Flora MacDonald, to help the young prince. When she heard the plan, Flora immediately told them it was crazy. What the heck were they thinking? This was incredibly dangerous. But eventually, Charlie's charisma and persuasiveness won her over. Most importantly, he appealed to her honor. From the sound of it, she didn't really want to help them. She didn't want to be part of this, but it was her duty. Flora MacDonald obtained permits and passes and helped to sew the prince's disguise. He had to pass for an Irish maid, and when he acted too awkward or too mannish, Flora just told suspicious observers that all Irish women were awkward and mannish and ugly. And this seemed to have worked. Uh, Racism is a heck of a drug, right? But Flora smuggled Charlie over the sea to sky, in so doing, creating the narrative for one of the most famous of all Jacobite songs, the Skyboat Song. They crossed the ocean in a small ship at night, since British vessels were patrolling the waters. When they did get to Skye, Flora snuck her, um, especially tall and ugly Irish maid past all the British patrols. They said their goodbyes on July 1st, with Charlie telling her that he would see her in London when his cause had succeeded. Of course, they never did meet again, and they only spent three days in each other's company. Flora was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. She immediately became an object of curiosity, and by spring 1747, she was an outright celebrity, having her portrait painted at least twice. When Crown Prince Frederick asked her why she had dared to help his father's enemies, Flora responded that she would have done the same thing for him. It was mercy, pity, the need to help those in distress. Flora was released in mid-1747 and lived quietly on Skye, barely aware of the legend that was growing up around her. Her days of excitement were over. Or so she thought, because believe it or not, we will meet Flora MacDonald again next week. But many women of the 45 were not lucky enough to become celebrities. The aftermath of Culloden was a dark time. The ravaging of the Highlands was especially cruel, since many women were left defenseless and exposed to a British army that was especially war crimey in this period. The inevitable result was that thousands of women were raped. Many more were deported across the seas with their husbands, or imprisoned alongside them when they were captured after Culloden. Some managed to save their men from the rope or the ship. Isabella Lumsden had forced her artistic fiancé, Robbie Strange, to join the Jacobite cause. When he escaped from Culloden, he managed to make his way down to Edinburgh to Bella's family, who hid him from the Redcoats. One day, the Redcoats came to their door looking for him, and with seconds to hide, Bella had her fiancé hide beneath her massive, stylish, hooped skirt. The British soldiers tore the house apart as Bella sat at her spinning wheel and her fiancé lay concealed beneath her. And you thought those skirts were useless. Other women managed to save their husbands through protest, through concealment, or even through sheer force of will. But just as often, these loving couples were separated forever. Perhaps the husband was transported and the wife stayed behind, forever apart from her Duncan or Donald or James. Sometimes the man was executed for his rebellion, with his wife dragging his body home to be buried and raise their children alone. 
Some women just waited for their husbands to return from an unknown fate, but they never did. Men were not the only victims of the 45. There were also the ones they left behind. Colonel Anne McIntosh was taken prisoner the day after Culloden and thrown in jail for her rebellious activities. In a neat little reversal of their previous positions, she was later released into her husband's custody. Multiple British officers wanted to make an example out of her. When some junior officers talked about the lady's honor, Hangman Hawley, who else, yelled, Damn the woman, I'll honor her with mahogany gallows and a silken cord. But that was just Hangman being Hangman. Colonel Anne escaped the noose, received a royal pardon, and settled back into a loving relationship with her husband. They carefully avoided talking about the war and the fact that she technically outranked him and remained happy for decades. A few years after Culloden, they were at a ball in London when the Duke of Cumberland, of all people, asked Anne to dance to a pro-Hanoverian tune. She agreed to the dance, but then demanded that he dance to her tune, the Jacobite song Old Stewart's Back Again. Colonel Anne and Butcher Cumberland performed their second dance, and I imagine she stepped on his toes every chance she got. It was an amazing act of defiance to the man who had burned the highlands. But Colonel Anne was never one to back down from a challenge. None of them were. There is a saying that behind every great man is a great woman. But I think it is better to say, beside. Because the women of the 45 were not, for the most part, passive observers. They raised troops and money, wove tartans, healed the wounded. They marched to Derby and to Culloden. Sometimes they had to put spine into their menfolk. They shared their terrible punishments after the conflict was over, and they did what they could to help save their men from the noose or the ship or a wound from battle. And when all was lost, women like Flora MacDonald and Bella Lumsden were their salvation. No part of the story I've told over the last four weeks would have been possible without them. The flames of the Jacobite cause burned brightly in the hearts of its women, even long after the guns of Culloden went silent. If you still doubt their commitment, Robert and Isabella Strange returned to London after years in exile. Robert, who had survived the aftermath of Culloden by hiding beneath his fiancée's hoop skirt, became one of the most respected artists of the 18th century, one of the inventors of modern engraving, and was even knighted as Sir Robert Strange. But his wife Isabella, Lady Isabella now, remained a rebel to the end of her days. Whenever anyone referred to Charles Edward Stuart as the pretender in her presence, she shut him down on the spot. Pretender? Prince? And damned be to you. Thanks a bunch for listening today, and thanks for hearing the story of the women of the 45. Give the ladies a round of applause. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to support in other ways, there's a donate button on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. Find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you got advice, I'd love to hear it. And if you haven't listened, don't forget the other short round I released today. Hear all about the most backstabbing, infamous Highland clan chief of all. The Old Fox, the most devious man in Scotland, the last man to be beheaded in British history. Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett. 
already on the feed on Unknown Soldiers.